Welcome to episode something of Cake Watch, the podcast about cakeism and Brexit. Um, that's, that's something that I do. Chris Kendall, I'm an uh, EU official, but that's not why I do the podcast. Uh, and I do that with my co-host, Steve Bullock, who's, again, unfortunately not here. And people are going to begin to think that there's something up with this, but there isn't. Um, uh, he hasn't fallen out with me. He still loves me. He's just uh, so busy and stuff going on. So I'm here on my own. Uh, except that I'm not. I'm with a guest, and I'm very happy about it. This is a very exciting guest. So, um, uh, Ian, Ian Bond of the um, Centre for European Reform, may I ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, well, it's very exciting for me too. Um, I'm Ian Bond. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform. Uh, I'm a former British diplomat. I left the Foreign Office in 2013 and joined the CER. And uh, I've been in Brussels this week for various meetings and very happy to catch up with Chris and be able to talk to, uh, to him about um, Brexit and foreign policy related issues mostly, I guess. Yeah, really looking forward to that. And uh, Ian, I've been following you for absolutely ages um, on Twitter uh, and have always very much appreciated the insights that you give. I hadn't realised that we must have overlapped then at the Foreign Office in 2010, 2011. Yeah, I would have been overseas at that time. Uh, I was in Washington during that period. Ah, that makes sense. And uh, if you want to talk to me about Trump at some point, I'll be happy to talk about American politics as well. But probably we should concentrate on Brexit for the time being. Yeah, sadly, we're doing this during um, our lunch break. And you might hear some pizza snaffling noises in the in the background while, while, while we talk, um, because we're, we're grabbing lunch on the hoof, as it were. Um, and we don't have that long. So this is probably going to be a slightly shorter podcast than usual, but we're going to try and sort of cram as much quality into the, into the short time that we have as we can. So let's crack on immediately um, and uh, with my very first question to you, which is what does reform mean in the context? I've been itching to ask this for years. What does reform mean in the context of CER? Well, CER's strapline is that we are pro-European but not uncritical. And I think anybody would say that there are things that the EU could do better than it currently does. So over the years, we have looked at reform in a whole range of areas. Um, I mean, including you know minor tweaks in, in foreign policy terms. Um, but also looking at things like Eurozone reform, governance, the famous democratic deficit and how you can help to close that gap, um, how you can make the commission work better and so mm. on. So over the years, some very brilliant minds, none of, none of them mine, uh, have been turned on to these questions of, you know, how do you just get the EU to um, to work better and to deliver better outcomes? Great. So I mean, well, that's proper reform, <laughs> as yeah, opposed to reform. repatriating powers, which is the shorthand for, um, for reform that um, tends to become prom- prevalent in much of the British yeah. discussion. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't exclude that the, there may be some things that are done better at a national level sure. than at a, a supranational level. Mm. But it also doesn't exclude that there are some things that are done currently at the national level that are better done at the yeah. supranational level. And, you know, in an area that I have been interested in, I'd say one of those, for example, is um, implementation of anti-money laundering mm. regulations. 
where up until now it's been handled by directives, they are transposed into national law. Uh, you look at the implementation across the EU and it's very, very inconsistent. Mm. And I think that's an area where there's a strong case actually for the Commission taking on more power mm. to administer the system. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say that CER, um, in, in these polarised times, we talk about you as a pro-European um, think tank, but I think it's fair to say that, um, certainly in my experience, CER has been seen as one of the most prominent and, and most authoritative and most neutral voices on the EU and in the whole EU discussion. I think, I think that's fair to say. I mean, you, you would probably agree, but... Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear, hear somebody else say it. Um, that's certainly where we've always tried to, to position ourselves. Um, you know, there are, there are enough think tanks around, particularly in the UK... Um, claiming that uh, the EU is the fount of all evil. Mm. And equally, there, is, there are some who are very uncritical. Um, we've always tried to position ourselves uh, to be as objective as possible mm. as, and as evidence-led as we can mm. be. Mm. And what, what does the future hold for the CER post-Brexit? Well, we've opened a small office in Brussels that's been there now about 18 months. It's literally around the corner from, from which my is flat, it seems. Literally around the corner from your flat, indeed so, Where yes, which makes right this now. very, very convenient yes. for uh, coming out and grabbing a pizza. Um, and uh, we've also, uh, we're in the process of opening a small office in Berlin. Mm -hmm. uh, half of our researchers are EU from other EU countries. Mm. Uh, so it's very important to us that although we will retain our main base in London, we will be doing a lot of work within the EU mm. even after Brexit, mm. assuming that Brexit goes ahead. Assuming it goes ahead, which right now um, I think is um, something of an assumption, actually. Um, I, I mentioned yesterday evening on Twitter that um, I was feeling more hopeful than I have since the referendum that actually it might not go ahead. Mm. Um, do you share that hope? I'm, I'm still nervous. I mean, my I would say that um, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is still the leader of the Labour Party makes me less hopeful that Brexit will not go ahead mm. uh, than I would otherwise be. Because yeah. it seems to me, especially if uh, he and Theresa May debate this issue... Yeah. Uh, that they will both be coming at this from the perspective that Brexit ought to go ahead, and that seems to me not the ideal. That debate, that, it's an extraordinary thing to look at that debate between two people who are both clearly in favour of Brexit in a context of a highly polarised nation where at least half are anti-Brexit or against the idea of coming out of the EU, and where the public are not going to have a say anyway, or at least not if um, Theresa May has anything to do with it. Yeah, I do find it quite extraordinary that she's doing this sort of tour of the country, trying to stir up support when the people that she is lobbying have no influence on the ultimate decision. It's extraordinary. And last year, she ran a general election um, unnecessarily, uh, one would argue, many would argue, but refused to go on TV to debate the other leaders. And this year you have this bizarre situation where she'll go on TV to debate one of the other leaders, but she won't put it out to a vote. So. Yeah, and, and she's going to debate it with the one, the one <laughs> other party yeah. leader who agrees with her. Yes. So very odd, very odd. Anyway, um, let's 
Cut to the chase. Um, let's talk a little bit about the withdrawal agreement and the uh, political declaration. Uh, and let's talk about it from the perspective of foreign policy, which is your, your area of expertise and, and I guess mine. <laughs> so your thoughts, your take. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think that uh, it's about as, good as you, about as good as you could expect, uh, which is to say that um, the more ambitious ideas that the British government put forward uh, earlier in, in the year about uh, you know, very deep consultations on foreign policy issues at every possible level and you know, on more or less the same frequent basis that we have now, uh, those have been watered down very considerably. But I think they were always going to be. But I think, you know, we, we've ended up pretty much where you might have predicted that we would end up, which is to say uh, that we will, ha- we will have as close a relationship as any other third country major like-minded partner of the EU has. You know, if you look at the US or Canada or, or Norway, for example. Um, but we are not going to be in the room. We're not going to have the influence that we, we currently have. Mm. And during the... Uh, the the transition period, as with other aspects of the withdrawal agreement, what we will be left with is having to follow the EU line, but mm-hmm. without having that voice in the room or seat yeah. at the table or however you like to describe it. Yeah, the there was some talk for a while, um, which used to st- still does irritate me enormously. It was classic cakeism, where it was suggested by leading Brexiters that it was. Um, not going to be difficult to persuade the EU that the UK should remain part of the CFSP structures, so the uh, Political and Security Committee and having some kind of a, a role in the Foreign Affairs Council, uh, essentially contributing to the formation of EU um, common positions um, on on foreign policy um, and then, I guess, being bound by those. So effectively... Um, remaining in that in that pillar while yeah. <laughs> while, while ditching its role in, in, in the first pillar and then the classic community um, structure. So remaining in the intergovernmental part of what we do. Um, I mean, it's fair to say that that was always uh, an impossible ask. I mean, that, 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 that's just not how it worked. Brexit means Brexit, etc., etc. I mean, classic cakeism. But I think um, um, without going too far into the detail of what I saw being discussed internally um, I think that there always was um, a willingness to uh, envisage a a very close relationship with the UK post-Brexit on foreign policy and security policy Um, uh, an unprecedentedly close one I think it's fair to say Um, but one that doesn't cross obvious red lines in terms of um, EU competence and EU, EU, um, EU um, the way in which EU yeah. structures are I mean, I, mean, are I think the, the thing that people talk about on both sides, actually, is decision-making autonomy. Yes. Um, and I, the, the UK's original proposals seem to me to, to get rather too close to the idea that the UK would be outside but somehow still have a, exactly. have a veto. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that that never seemed to me to be realistic. But where we've ended up, you know, it's pretty much where, as I say, other like-minded countries end up. And then it's it's basically up to the UK 
uh, how it how much it makes of that relationship. Yeah, and and I think one of the questions for the UK, which I have the sense it's still struggling to answer, is if you have a completely independent foreign policy, how is it different? Mm. Yeah, uh, you know, I, the the um, former senior. British and EU official Sir Robert Cooper uh, said a while back that he thought that the UK would end up with a, a Me Too foreign policy. This is rather before the Me Too mm. movement in that sense. Mm. Um, but in the sense that on most of the big foreign policy questions, we'd continue to agree with the rest of the EU. Mm. And when the EU had made its mind up what its position was, the UK would raise its hand and say, me too. Yeah. Which is effectively how it works at the moment in terms of um, third countries being associated with the EU position. Exactly so. Um, so where where is the deeper and... Uh, I, I forget the precise label that, that we've given it, but, but, but the, the, this, the uniquely deep and special partnership... Uh, aspect of, of 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 the is that in the withdrawal agreement? Is that in more more importantly? Is that in the political declaration? Well, it's to play for in the political yeah. Di- yeah. Uh, declaration, like everything else, yeah. and and that in a sense is one of the problems is that the political declaration is only a um, a statement of good intentions. Mm. Uh, it's yeah. not binding, yeah. and. You know, particularly given the importance of all the economic questions that are outstanding, uh, there's a there's a real risk. I think that if we end up in a bad place in the economic discussions, that that will poison the political, diplomatic, foreign policy, security relationships as well. Yeah, and you can see some contamination, if you like, if you take the issue of the Galileo satellite mm. navigation mm. system. Uh, you know that is a place where foreign and security policy collides with industrial policy, mm. and the EU has gone for a solution which suits EU industrial interests, mm. those of the the EU twenty seven, mm. particularly those of France, if we're honest, mm. um, at the expense of continuing with with what has been actually quite a successful collaboration between. British and other EU defence contractors uh, working on the Galileo project. Mm, mm. And so you end up with um, a paragraph in the um, political declaration relating to to space, uh, which basically says nothing. Mm, mm. In fact, I commented that really they could just have put in something that said this space has been intentionally left blank. (laughs) Nice. for all the content that there was in the uh, in the one sentence, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what, one thing that I've banged down about quite a bit in uh, on the, on this podcast, but also on Twitter, and probably a, a little overegging it, frankly, is that um, I've wanted to pierce this bubble of delusion um, of exceptionalism that I've perceived in a lot of the British discussion uh, around Brexit and the foreign policy aspects of it, where it's UK foreign policy prowess, UK soft power, UK hard power is seen as some kind of trump card. uh, And that this is the joker that the UK will lay down uh, and use to persuade the EU to make concessions on all sorts of other areas. Um, 
And I think that that rather significantly overplays the the UK's influence um, in EU foreign policy and EU security policy. So I don't want to go too far down that line and pretend that such influence doesn't exist, that the EU, that the UK isn't a foreign policy and security policy player, because it obviously is. But, but it's not quite the predominant one that it thinks it is. I, I mean, I think I would divide it up into, into different um, baskets, because, uh, I mean, to take the one where I think the UK has probably been most influential... If you look at sanctions yeah. as one of the key instruments that the EU has at its disposal, uh, then actually the UK has been enormously influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has, um, partly because of the way that our own um, court system and so on works, uh, the UK has been uniquely good at providing sanctions designations that will stand up in the European Court of Justice if they're challenged. Mm. And even within the External Action Service and the Commission, there is an acknowledgement that by far the majority of sanctions listings are reliant on the UK. And a lot of the officers who are responsible for for implementing that policy are actually um, secondees from from London. that's also true. So that's an area where I think actually the, the UK does provide disproportionate value. If you take um, the, the, let's say, the key foreign policy questions of the moment, then I would say in the last few years, partly because of the distractions of first the renegotiation and then the, the Brexit phase, uh, the UK has been playing a smaller role. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I go back, say, best part of a decade, uh, the UK was playing an instrumental role in areas of EU foreign policy, um, such as you know, policy towards the Horn of Africa, mm. uh, Zimbabwe, Burma, mm. uh, Western Balkans, and so on. Um, and we really pulled back from a lot of that. Well, you mentioned Robert Cooper, of course, and Robert Cooper um, was an absolute giant in EU foreign policy for for a number of years and he was um he he was the uh chief diplomat um under Javier Solana um and played an extraordinarily important and influential role in EU CFSP in developing the EU security strategy for example the first security strategy and and its revision um and in setting up the external action service which is where I work so exceptionally important role um, but I mean, he retired, <laughs> and now when you look um, at, at the EAS and at the key foreign policy players, um, it, it, increasingly the, the Brits have dropped away. I mean, you, you mentioned sanctions, and I, I just wanted to come back to sanctions. We, we, Steve and I, had discussed sanctions in, in an earlier podcast, and you're absolutely right. But of course, the thing about sanctions is that sanctions are above above all; they're a way for the UK to multiply its its influence and um, it, then it's not a card that the UK can play in terms of saying well look you know maybe I'm wrong you can correct me if I'm wrong but it seems to me that that's that's not a card that the UK can play saying well look you know if, if you know if, if you lose us and our, 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 our fantastic sanctions 
um, knowledge and experience and expertise, uh, you lose a big part of um, an important EU foreign policy tool. Uh, it seems to me rather the other, the opposite, which is that the UK, by walking away, loses one of its most influential and powerful foreign policy tools. Yeah, I think it works both ways, actually. I mean, on the one hand, if the UK just imposes national sanctions, it's quite rare that we are such an important economic partner of you know, a target country yeah. that we're going to be able to change their calculus in the way that the EU 28 taking yeah. currently, taking action... Plus, 28 plus, of course. Yeah, 28 plus, yeah. countries, yeah. Mm. Um, can have, a, can have mm. an impact. Um, but, so, you know, there's a, there's a loss on the, on the UK side. Uh, but I think on the EU side, there is a loss because, um, you know, if, if, you, if you're looking for effective um, levers... The EU doesn't have that many mm. policy levers that it, that it can use. Yeah. You know, we can't park an aircraft carrier off the coast of somewhere in the way that the US can. Mm. Um, and uh, if you, I mean, it's possible for the External Action Service, the Commission, the member states to develop their expertise in targeting individuals for sanctions or you know designing sanctions mm. that will be effective but it will take some time mm. at the very least mm. uh, and i think the you know those british secondees that you were talking about will actually leave an important gap mm. so it's a lose lose i mean it's mm. not the only one but it yeah. is definitely a lose lose and the th- so i mean the third basket that i was going to refer mm. to is development assistance yeah uh, it's a pity that Steve isn't here. I know that's his area of, yeah. of expertise. Um, but to a significant extent, the UK has been able to shape the way that the the EU does development yeah. cooperation. Uh, and again, I think I mean that's a, a net loss yeah. to the UK in terms of its leverage. But it's also a loss to the EU in terms of devising effective aid programs and then the final area is the military and there i would very much agree with you that actually the uk overestimates its importance in that area uh not because it doesn't have an important military but because our contribution to most csdp missions has been quite small Mm. Uh, you can argue well we provided the operational headquarters for the anti-piracy operation in the gulf of aden that's quite important um, irreplaceable? I, I'm not sure that it is irreplaceable. No, there's only one of uh, 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 quite a number of military CSDP yeah. operations where yeah. OHQs have been uh, dotted all around. Exactly. Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that the OHQ will now move, I think, mm. to Spain, if I recall correctly, um, you know, clearly a yeah. substitute has been found. And if you look look at our troop contributions to CSDP missions. They've been generally pretty small. Yeah, exactly, and and that 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 was a point that I wanted to make too, which is that um, uh, when you look at some other countries like Poland, like 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 Ireland, um, arguably their contribution on the military side has been as important as the UK's. Um, so so on on I, I I certainly think you're right on the on the on the military side. Um, if and and I want to talk a little little bit about that because I think actually that that's that's. The military bit of it is is where it gets interesting, which is where you see potentially some tension between uh, where the EU wants to go and where the UK wants to go. 
So on the foreign policy, you can see a lot of continued alignment and so on. But where it, where it comes to the military side and, 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 and developing capacities and developing structures, uh, that was always where the UK was, was a back marker and, 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 and quite deliberately obstructive. Uh, and I think that that's where a lot of the other member states and where also I think the institutions see a Brexit dividend. <laughs> they see um, opportunities opening up that didn't exist before because they knew that they weren't going to be able to go down those paths because the UK would simply block. Um, but let me, before we go down that particular rabbit hole, um, just coming back to the two baskets that you mentioned, sanctions and divert. And I think that's really, I think that actually that that's really important for people to, to remember, which is that um, the EU is a big player around the world. Um, and has a lot of leverage, but its leverage is very much tied up in its wealth, both as a market uh, and as, an, as a donor. And um, a lot of what the EU has been trying to do over the last 10 to 15 years um, in setting up structures and setting up the external action service and so on is, is to create uh, a more joined up foreign policy where those levers can be used uh, more effectively because um, I think um, there, there's been a reluctance to join them up uh, and also um, obstacles to joining them up in many ways. But um, one, one, one area where perhaps I'll, I'll push back a little bit on you is where um, you, you talked about the UK contribution in terms of expertise on sanctions. Um, I don't know enough about it to be honest to be, to, to be able to push back on that. On the development side too, I'm not an expert but I think while it's while it, it, it's inarguable that the UK is a big development player uh, and has a lot of expertise, it's I would say it's it, it, it's most certainly not the only one and, and perhaps not even the leading one. I mean, I think that there are some member states who who also see themselves as playing um, as uh, punching above their weight. There, I mean, the Swedes, for example. Um, so I, I I don't know that. Um, that on the development side, um, the UK is necessarily going to be quite so sorely missed, especially as I think that there's an assumption that actually there will be very close cooperation going forward, as, as we have with other third party, third country donors. I think, well, it depends how you define it. Um, I mean, at the, at the country level, uh, there are a number of um, partnerships. Uh, I think the, the Swiss from memory, are among the most active of the third countries in uh, going in for joint programming mm. with the EU in um, in uh, countries in need of assistance. Um, the question for me is, does the UK get any role in shaping things mm. at the kind of program so, level? And yeah. that's much less clear. Yeah. And... With with the way that the um, the next uh, EU financial perspective is likely to change the way that mm. e, the EU itself does some of its budgetary um, yeah. or some of its development assistance, uh, that may actually make it more complicated not just for the UK but for other third countries yeah. to contribute to EU programs as well. Um, and I think that's something that the the EU itself needs to take into account as it's devising its new development assistance yes. programs going forward and thinking about their governance and so on. 
That's a very live debate at the moment. That, that's a really interesting area uh, because right now um, the Commission's proposals for the next multi-annual financial framework are with the Parliament and the Council. They are with the co-legislators and they're being debated and it's mm. super, super political right now. And of course the UK is still a member for another three yeah. months or so. Um, and therefore at the table and um, providing uh, input and taking positions. But of course it's fair to say that its influence is hugely diminished uh, and I think um, its civil servants uh, sitting in those groups are well aware that their, their interventions are going to have less impact than they would have done. Um, so this whole new and, and, and there's some quite um, quite radical ideas being developed in terms of the next financial framework. Could, could you sort of run through them very briefly? Well, I think the main thing is that in the past, the European Development Fund has been off budget. Uh, it's had a different um, key for payments into it um, from the, uh, the main EU budget. Uh, and it's been managed in a different way and it's run on a different cycle. Uh, now, the Commission for a while has wanted to budgetise it. And I know that for quite a lot of people within the development community, that, that's actually something of a worry because um, the way that it is, has been run has rather um, uh, suited the idea that you know poverty uh, alleviation is, a, is the key priority and um, that it's not, as it were, a political task. It's, it, it's, it's a moral duty. Um, and so I think there's a, a worry in the development community that the more this just becomes part of the everyday EU budget, the more it becomes a political tool, not um, mm. a way of raising some of the poorest people in the world out of poverty. Sure. Um, and you know, it has to be said that I th that the the uh, current uh, UK Development Secretary may not be actually quite as, sympathy, as sympathetic to the pro-poor agenda yeah. as some of her predecessors have been. So that's something that we have to watch <laughs> on the UK side put, as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think there, you know, there is a concern that if the Commission rolls the European Development Fund into its overall budget, mm then you lose some of what has made that a particularly effective way of uh, addressing problems of poverty and conflict and disease and so on in, uh, in developing countries. I, I guess um, it, there are different kinds of effectiveness. And we had just been talking about the EU's deep pockets and how much influence that gives the EU or potential influence that gives the EU, mm. but, but the difficulty that the EU has had in finding ways to leverage that influence and um, so arguably um, some of the proposals currently being discussed by the co-legislators are aimed at um, improving that effectiveness, making that more effective by indeed uh, creating closer uh, mm. synergies between what we're doing on the foreign policy side in the EAS and what the colleagues over the road and DevCo and so on are doing. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, that I think that leads 
us to one of the things that we wanted to talk about, and we're sort of moving on very quickly, not in our usual prolix way. <laughs> Ian, I'm sorry about that, and I'm sorry to the listeners too, because um, uh, it's a different kind of discussion that we're having. But I think I think it's really interesting. Um, I thought or we, we we were discussing before we started recording. Um, we should perhaps have a little bit of a, a think about what the impact of Brexit is going to be on UK foreign policy and on EU foreign policy. Mm. Yeah, I, both of them very good questions. I think we've touched a bit on the uh, the question of what impact it has on UK foreign policy. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I've really racked my brains as to whether you know there is a part of the world where the UK would either do something that the that its EU membership has prevented it from doing or take a lead mm. where in the past the EU has has led and I've really struggled with it mm. you know in about the only part of the world where I can think well maybe the UK the UK could do something different would be in the Middle East because the EU itself has struggled to find a consensus on what to do in the Middle East but the problem is that if you then ask, well, you know, what would the UK do? That's quite a tricky question. You know, the UK is the UK is not well placed to mediate in the Middle East peace process between Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, arguably, you could say it has leverage in the Yemen conflict, but. I think the Foreign Secretary and I suspect the Prime Minister are not that anxious to get on the wrong <laughs> side of Saudi Arabia. Um, Syria, I don't think any European country has much influence over the um, the development of things in Syria. So it's, it's actually, mm-hmm. I mean, it's an area where you can say, well, the EU has not really been doing much in that area, but it's not an area where you could say, but the UK has a much better chance of, of doing something. But the thing about the common foreign security policy is that at the moment it's based on unanimity, which means that if there is no common position, no joint joint position among the twenty eight, it is a, you know member states are free to do, to pursue their own foreign policy. Yeah. So it's not as if the UK could not already have been pursuing an independent foreign policy in those areas where the EU was not able yeah. to um, deliver a common foreign no, policy. Absolutely, and the reality is that actually in most areas the EU uh, has been led by primarily France and the and the well, UK. Well, and, in and increasingly recently, France and Germany. Yeah. Because when you look at Ukraine, for example, or you look at what happened in, 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 in Georgia, and you look at the wider um, post-Soviet space uh, and the EU neighbourhood, um, it has been very obvious to any half-sentient um, observer that since, and I choose the date carefully, 2010, um, Where's the UK been at the table? You look there. You you see uh, you see um, processes involving Sarkozy and Merkel, or, or Hollande and Merkel, or uh, yeah. Macron and Merkel, and, and, and various other. You see also a very active role being taken by the Italians in certain places and the Spanish in certain places. Where's the UK? Yeah. No, I think you make a you make a very good point, um, and certainly if one looks at, uh, at Ukraine, um, the UK had every reason as one of the signatories to the Budapest Memorandum 
which Russia violated by seizing Crimea. Yeah. The UK had every reason to be involved in the in the process and and chose not to be, to leave yeah. it to the French and Germans uh, to, to uh, tackle the Russians in the so-called Normandy format. So uh, that, that, I think, is, is quite right. Um, I mean, where the UK has continued to be important, you know, circling back, is in the, the sanctions issue. So mm. when the Russians did not withdraw from Crimea, did not withdraw from eastern Ukraine and so on, um, you know, it's the UK which has helped to devise sanctions which have some impact at least on senior Russians, people close to, to Putin mm. and so on. Um, but we have not been part of the the political process. Hmm. I think it is worth looking at what impact, though, the UK's departure has um, on the EU's ability to make foreign policy. And although the External Action Service has come a very long way since 2011, it remains the case that uh, the the political and intelligence input from member states is very important, and the UK has been one of the the big providers of political and diplomatic information mm. about crises as they've unfo- mm. unfolded. Um, and that, I think, is something that that uh, the EU will feel the loss of. I mean, others will, in one way or another, fill the gap. But actually, again, with the exception of the French and the Germans, uh, there aren't really any of the other um, EU member states who have the same global foreign policy um, you will only have France with a permanent seat on the Security Council uh, able to feed backwards and forwards information on what's happening in uh, in Security Council consultations um, hmm. and you know for the UK it's a loss of leverage but for the EU it's um, it's a loss of insight it is in a pretty difficult situation at the moment. Yeah. Um, the Estonian president tweeted, I think, yesterday uh, that you know this was open war going on in in Europe, and mm. I think she's right. Um, and again, I think it's one of those areas where the UK, even if it isn't part of the Normandy format, has none nonetheless played a role in fixing the centre of gravity of EU policy probably somewhat tougher than quite a number of member states would like, probably not as tough as, say, some of the Central and Eastern European countries would like. Um, But I think it'll be an important test after Brexit to see whether um, that centre of gravity is going to move further towards the the soft end of the the spectrum as a result of the departure of the UK and I think there's you know there's evidence to suggest that that is the case yeah in the UK um, it has a seat at the table in the Foreign Affairs Council and the Political and Security Committee and the working groups um, and it has a voice and whether it's a 128th of the influence or whether it's slightly more than that it is an influence and its absence will therefore shift some mm. of the, those calculations and some of those um, formulae. Um, I would be surprised if Brexit changes things significantly also on when it comes to the Eastern Partners and the Eastern Partnership because the UK 
in my experience, was, was somewhere in the middle and also a little bit disengaged, frankly, uh, for various reasons. And so um, when it came to, when it comes to Eastern Partnership questions and um, Russia handling, um, the, the real, the voices that are most prominent um, tend not to be the ones in London. That's my experience. Mm. Um, but it's a re- it, it is a, it is a challenge for the EU because there's a, there's a clear fault line there, and and the 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 Russians have invested an enormous amount of energy in exploiting those fault lines and and making them um, making them deeper um, with quite some success, and they haven't finished. And um, I I I think it's fairly clear that Brexit should be seen as a Russian foreign policy success. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I don't think the Russians are the only people with their fingerprints on it. Uh, I think there are uh, a number of people in right-wing American circles whose fingerprints are on it as well. But then and there's a question of whether that, that, they, they well, have uh, uh, you know, an unholy alliance. Uh, indeed, whether they're working together is, a, is yeah. another question. And if you were interviewing Carol Cadwallader rather than me, I think she would probably be able to <laughs> give you quite a lot of information pointing in that direction. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Russians certainly have invested a lot of, of effort in this um, uh, you know the more divided that uh, their adversaries as they would see it are uh, then the better it is for them mm. um, I think one of the problems that the EU has had for a long time is that the EU um, looks at things in terms of if you have stable democratic and prosperous neighbours that's a good thing uh, whereas the Russians ask themselves, are my neighbours for me or against me? Yeah. And if they think that their neighbours either are or might be against them, then it's better that they be unstable, undemocratic and yeah. impoverished. Exactly. Um, so they would, you know, I think basically Putin would rather have weak, hostile states on his borders because they're impotent to do anything to harm him mm. than strong, neutral, but potentially hostile states mm. on his border. Uh, now, I, you know, I'd regard that as a weakness in Russian foreign policy. Mm. Um, but it's but diametrically it, opposed to our policy. I mean, yeah, and I think one of, the, one of the problems that the EU has is that um, it always has this tendency to say, well, you know, no reasonable leader of Russia could imagine that you know, incurring the hostility of Ukraine would be a good thing. And to that, I would say, well, you know, Putin is actually a rational leader, leader, and he regards it as better to have a weak and divided mm. Ukraine than one that's moving in the direction of Western organizations that mm. he regards as inimical to Russia's interests. Yeah, or even even so. So I mean, there, there was that interesting time, wasn't there, in twenty thirteen, where um, the uh, Kremlin's focus seemed to shift away from NATO and and to the Eastern Partnership and what the EU was doing. Because of course, what the EU was doing there, or has, is doing there, was 
was was an open book and and, and nothing new and, and indeed we you know had regular consultations with the Russians and told them all about it and they even had a standing invitation to join the multilateral bits of the Eastern Partnership and and somewhere somehow um, uh, that seemed to hit a certain desk and um, people in people in Moscow woke up and suddenly started seeing what we were doing there as as, as a threat and. Uh, it, What's interesting, I mean, it's a very interesting thought experiment, you know, why then, um, why not before, and uh, and why, you know, full stop. And I think you, you've just answered the why, which is that we we have always, the, the, the objectives of the Eastern Partnership and the European Neighbourhood Policy are explicitly to um, bring um, prosperity, stability and security to, to the neighbourhood and therefore to us. We, we we are safer and we are more prosperous if our neighbours are safe and prosperous. Um, and you've just um, explained why that might seem obvious, that might mm. seem almost axiomatic, but it's not. Not It depends on where you're sitting. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, you ask a good question, why then? And I think one of the answers is that um, at some point, somebody must have said to Putin when he was really putting some emphasis on the Eurasian Economic Union as as Russia's kind of, I mean, it's not quite rebuilding the Soviet Union. It's, in fact, it's nothing like rebuilding the Soviet Union, but it's trying to kind of reassemble some of the economic ties that were lost after the Soviet Union. But somebody must have said to Putin in 2013, look, if Ukraine and uh, Armenia in particular go ahead and sign these association agreements with the EU, you do realise that they won't be able to join a Eurasian customs exactly. union. Mm. And at that point, I think, you know, yeah. somewhere in the Kremlin, a, a light bulb yeah. went on. Yeah. And that triggered a process that then led to uh, Yanukovych pulling out of the, um, the signature of the association mm. agreement. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Armenians pulled out earlier in the, in the year... Um, and the Armenians were always in a much more vulnerable position. Mm. They're much more dependent on Russia for their security. Uh, but for the Ukrainians, mm. um, it was it was a big U-turn. Even mm. Yanukovych, pro-Russian thug though he was in many respects, had felt obliged throughout his time in office to keep talking up Ukraine's prospects of getting closer to the EU. Mm. And suddenly... Putin had to kind of apply the thumbscrews mm. until he would agree not to um, to sign up to the association agreement, mm. and you know that then triggered the whole process. Mm. Um, but it seems clear to me that that it, it was only at a fairly late stage that somebody drew to the attention of the Kremlin that the deep and comprehensive free trade agreements were incompatible with membership yeah. of the um, of the customs. Union. Yeah, it, it, it's. It, 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 it's it's just really odd that it took that long yeah, for that to filter no, through. No, it is. Um, and I think, it, you know, even in the Barroso Commission, if I recall correctly, uh, the Russians were telling the European Commission, we really don't care if Ukraine joins the EU as long as it doesn't join NATO. Um, Ian, uh, time has uh, flown and we are now out of it. <laughs> so we need to wrap up. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about um, just in the last couple of minutes that we haven't been able to touch upon yet? 
Well, it's a bit out of my lane, but I guess the one thing I would want to touch on is the the internal security side of Brexit. Um, it's the one area where um, I understand the the EU twenty seven position from a legal perspective, um, but I can't help feeling that it carries huge political risks for the EU twenty seven as well as for the UK. Um, you know, if you look at police and counterterrorism cooperation, um, there is no gain to anybody from a lessening of that cooperation. And yet, reading what's in the um, political declaration and the withdrawal agreement, there is clearly going to be less of it in future. And it does seem to me that if there is, God forbid, a successful terrorist attack somewhere in Europe, and it turns out in the uh, lessons learned exercise that a re- one reason for that is the breakdown of information sharing between the UK and its partners. Uh, politi- politicians on whichever side are not really going to be forgiven for that. Um, mm. So, you know, as I say, it's slightly out of the foreign policy lane, but it does seem to me that actually of all of the consequences of Brexit, it's the one which is the most regrettable. It's the one which is the biggest lose-lose. Yeah. But what... The way you've presented that is that um, it's a lose-lose for both sides and both sides have a responsibility and politicians on both sides will be blamed. Of course, where I'm sitting, I think that the blame would fall more heavily on those politicians that decided to chase this Brexit that um, everybody was telling them, no, no. Look at the look at the risks. Look at the dangers. But I don't think life works like that. I mean, I think you know, if a bomb goes off somewhere, people won't say Nigel Farage is to blame. They will look at the Interior Minister of Country X and say, "Why weren't you talking to all of your colleagues?" And it might be the UK, or it might be some somebody else in mm. Europe. And it seems to me that although I absolutely understand that lawyers do legal stuff and, you know, the the legalities surrounding, say, access to the Schengen information system are quite clear that, you know, you get access to it if you're a Schengen country or if you're an EU country who isn't a Schengen country Mm. and not if you're a non-EU, non-Schengen country. Um, This is one of those cases where... The client needs to say to the lawyer, "Find me a way around this." Not, but they have to do that. It, it's not going to happen automatically. It's absolutely not they, going to happen know, automatically. It, it, so, no. on one side or the other, uh, or both, ideally both, they're going to have to come and yeah. say, "Listen, we we need to make these systems work." Yeah. So, what are you going to do to make them yeah. work? But what I what I hear regularly is that um, you know, if people talk to interior ministries around Europe. They say they've really been shut out of the Brexit process so far. And if we, you know, if we're moving towards, as it were, the negotiation of a future relationship, assuming that, you know, the whole thing is not called off. But if we are moving towards negotiating a future relationship, it seems to me that that would be my absolute top priority, even above anything economic, mm-hmm. uh, would would be to find ways around the obstacles that are coming up in the in the um, security, uh, home affairs, law enforcement cooperation area, and and your sense is that 
that there's a risk that that it's not being prioritised? I think there's a risk that you know the lawyers say to you, well, you can't do that because that's what's in the treaty. Mm. Um, and people say, oh, well, tant pis. Um, and I think this is too important for tant pis. Mm. Okay. Well, I, 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 can't, um, I can't say whether they're saying tant pis or not. <laughs> uh, you're, you're more plugged into that than I am, I suspect. Um, I, mean, I, think, I think that there certainly is a general feeling of, well, you know, what Brexit means Brexit. You, you, know, you made your bed, you lie in it. And, you know, um, we didn't want this. We didn't ask for this. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's justified. Um, at the same time, as you say, um, we also need to mitigate, uh, and it's on it's on everybody to mitigate. But um, it's it's so difficult, isn't it, when you've got a partner that um, doesn't seem to know what it wants and seems increasingly un- yeah. unreliable um, to go to that partner and say, "Look, yeah, despite yeah. everything that's happened, we still need to do this." So come on, uh, it, it's, it's difficult, and 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 politicians also have their own. Constituencies yeah. to think, but of. I, I don't think there is a single politician in an interior ministry anywhere in Europe who thinks that reducing the amount of information that's shared on crime or terrorism uh, is going to improve the security of mm. their citizens. Mm. And it seems to, and and you know, in the economic area, mm. it seems to me clearly win lose. Mm. You know, mm. there uh, there is every incentive for the EU twenty seven. Mm to make life uncomfortable for the British. I, mm. I quite understand that. Mm. The foreign policy area, you know, on balance I see as lose-lose, but it's not clear to me that either side is going to lose a massive amount. I just mm. think, you know, things won't run as smoothly as they did before, but, mm. you know, it's not probably the, the end of the world. But when it comes to justice and home affairs, you're dealing with literally life and death issues. Mm. We've already seen that in e- even within the EU and within Schengen, mm. that sort of law enforcement cooperation does not always run mm. perfectly. It seems to me that anything that makes that worse has got to be a really bad thing and worth paying a price to avoid. Well, I, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah. I think it every time I go through Malbec Station. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Which is just um, so the context there is of course the 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 bomb that went off in Malbec, um, which is just down the hill, which is literally here. just yeah. I was sat right here when it went off and heard all the sirens going past yeah. and wondered what was going on. Turned the TV yeah. on, yeah. So. Look on that on that rather somber note, uh, we need to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much, Ian. Really, well, it's been my pleasure. Thank uh, you. Thank you for the pizza as well. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, mine sat, sat there going cold, so I'm going to sort of take it with me and, and eat it at my desk. Uh, listen, um, thank you so much. I really hope that we can do this again yeah. uh, one day. Yeah, um, the glamorous um, life of a Eurocrat eating cold pizza at a desk. Yes. <laughs> um, and hopefully, Steve will be with us next time. So. Look, thank you very much. Um, and let's wrap up. Thanks, Ian. We're going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop the creepy stuff.